Hopefully with this video, this will help to sort of break our way through that. We don't have a photo copy of it. It's called <laughs> the full moon. The reason it's called the full moon because it was given on a full moon day. They, this particular sutta was given on a full moon day by the um, Buddha. Does anybody want to know the number on the, of, the, of the Sutta 109, Middle End Saying? 109. I had a feeling there were some bookkeeping, bookkeepers here that wanted to know that. <laughs> yes, it is. It's quite true, quite true. I'm not <laughs> knocking it at all. <laughs> on one occasion, as I have heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living at Savati in the palace of Megara's mother, the Eastern Park. Now we know all about that, don't we? Now on that occasion it was the Positor Day of the 15th on the night when the moon was full. Positor is the day of the full moon which is celebrated in Buddhist countries, particularly the one I know best, which is Sri Lanka, and it is an official holiday on the... Um, and it's called Poya Day in, in Sri Lanka, but it is the Opositor Day. Um, Opositor is the uh, Pali word, and uh, Poya is the um, um, singularized version of another Pali word. And it's, uh, since uh, Buddhism is the state religion in Sri Lanka, also in Thailand and Burma, uh, the um, full moon day is a, stay, is, a, is a holiday, an official holiday and banks and post offices are closed and the children are off from school so they're very happy about that. The full moon is very often in many ways associated with the Buddha and his um, life. So it was on the, of the 15th on the night when the moon was full. What's this explanation here? The full moon falls on the last day, the 15th, of the bright half of the lunar month. Oh, I see. Okay. Um, and the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. So one could imagine that this was at night, and the Buddha was sitting with the Bhikkhus outside under the full moon. Rather a nice idea what one can visualize. Then a certain Bhikkhu rose from his seat and arranging his robe on one shoulder, this, this shoulder, he raised his hands, palms together towards the Blessed One and he said, Venerable Sir, I would ask the Blessed One a question if the Blessed One would grant me an answer to the question. Sit on your own seat, Bhikkhu, and ask what you like. So the Bhikkhu sat on his own seat and he said to the Blessed One. Now again, this is part of the, the um, recitation that Ananda made at the time of the um, when the Arahants came together to recite the suttas and he's telling all these details so that one can remember the occasion there are, now the question there are venerable sir are there not these five aggregates affected by clinging that is to say the form aggregate the feeling aggregate, the perception aggregate, the mental formations aggregate, and the consciousness aggregate, all affected by clinging. There are because these five aggregates affected by clinging. And the Buddha repeats them. 
saying, Good venerable sir, the bhikkhu was satisfied and he delighted in the blessed one's words. And then he asked him a further question. In other words, he wasn't quite, quite finished yet with his question. But venerable sir, what, these, what do these five aggregates affected by clinging have as their root? These five aggregates affected by clinging bhikkhu have desire as their root. Root in this case we would say the root, the cause. Why do they exist? Why are they there? I mean they're nothing but trouble to us. So why do we have them? So the reason for that is the cause for them is desire. Okay? Venerable Sir, he's not finished yet, he's got more to say. Is that clinging the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging, or is the clinging something apart from these five aggregates affected by clinging? Now, the Buddha had said these five aggregates affected by clinging have desire as their root. And now the bhikkhu says, is that clinging the same? So the word desire and the word clinging in Pali can be the same. It can be tanha, and tanha is both. And in this case that would have been used. I don't have the Pali here, but I would imagine that that's what has been used, because it is once translated as desire once translated as clinging. And it wouldn't, the question wouldn't make much sense if he wasn't con- uh, referring to clinging. No, the Pali word, sorry, I'll take all that back. The Pali word which is connected to the five aggregates has to be Upadana. They're called the Pancha Upadana uh, Kanda. Pancha is five, Upadana, clinging, Kanda, aggregates. The five aggregates of clinging, so it has to be Upadana. And Upadana can be translated also, as he has done in the first instance, as desire actually is clinging. So what the, what the bhikkhu understood the Buddha to say that these five aggregates affected by clinging bhikkhu have desire as their root. But he could have said they have clinging as their root. But that would have made that sentence very difficult. So now the bhikkhu says, but is that clinging that is the root cause, is that the same as these five aggregates? Or is the clinging which is the root cause something apart from these five aggregates. Clear? Question clear? Yes? No? Sort of? (laughs) I don't don't understand why you're asking that. I mean, I... I Oh, well, uh, you wouldn't think that they were the same. Okay, well that's fine. I mean, he's just maybe a little more dense, who knows? Um, or may <laughs> he gives us a chance to have a discourse. <laughs> it's okay, it's fine. <laughs> Bhikkhu, that clinging is neither the same as these five aggregates affected by clinging, nor is it something apart from those five aggregates affected by clinging. It is the desire and lust comprised in these five aggregates affected by clinging that is the clinging there. Nice sentence or something. Is that clear? Shall I say sort of? Okay, I'll 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 take it apart. Um, 
<laughs> we are calling these five aggregates the five aggregates of clinging, right? So now the bhikkhu says, okay, you said that they have as their root, they have clinging. So is the clinging that they have as their root the same as the five aggregates of clinging? Buddha says it's neither the same nor is it totally different. It's embedded in them. Desire and lust are embedded in the khandas. So we can't say they're exactly the same, naturally. I mean, the uh, perception cannot be said to be the same as clinging, but clinging is, is embedded in it. Okay? Clear? Clear as a summer sky or clear as mud? Okay, great. Okay, next. <laughs> But Venerable Sir, well, it's not clear to him apparently because he starts off the spot. <laughs> Might there be, ah, he's got a new idea. Might there be particular diversity in the desire and lust comprised in these five aggregates affected by clinging? Now, what he's asking is that is this desire and lust always the same in all these five or is there something different within them? I mean, it does seem strange that there should be the same desire and lust in all of these different five aggregates embedded in them. So he wants to have something different. So the Buddha said this, there might be bhikkhu, the blessed one said, (coughs) here bhikkhu, someone thinks like this, may my form be such in the future, body, huh? Form. May my feeling be such in the future, may my perception be such in the future, may my mental formations be such in the future. May my consciousness be such in the future. Thus, Bhikkhu, there is particular diversity in the desire and lust comprised in these five aggregates affected by clinging. So the diversity is very minor, isn't it? Because it's just concerned with the diversity of these five. That's all. That's what the Buddha is saying. It has no other... It's not different. The desire and lust is not different in itself. It's just different with which one it concerns, which one of the five it concerns, right? Okay, makes sense, huh? So he's still asking, he's still on a butt line. But, Venerable Sir, in what way is aggregate a term for the aggregate? Now, he really wants to get it down to the last nitty-gritty here. And this is good for us, because that way we get a bit of an insight into this. So the Buddha says, any kind of form, any kind of body, huh? but it, it, it concerns form, whatever, whether past, future, or present, in oneself or external, so it's any form at all, huh? gross or subtle, so we have gross bodies, but there are subtle bodies also in the universe, inferior or superior, far or near, that is the form aggregate. And then the same about feeling, perception, and formation. So he, what he's saying is, all of this, wherever it is, it's not just a human body or a human feeling or a human perception or a human mental formation. It's whether it's in the past or in the future or present now, whether it is gross or subtle, which is ours or in a subtle realm, whether it's outside of ourselves or inside, that's why it's called the aggregate, because it concerns a whole um, mass of different forms or different feelings, right? And then he says the same thing about consciousness. Any kind of consciousness, whatever, whether past, future, or present, in oneself or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, this is the consciousness aggregate. 
It is in this way that aggregate is a term for the aggregate. Sometimes it's differently explained, but we'll stay with this one because it's fairly easy. Eh? It's quite clear, this one. Why it's aggregate? Because there's no problem. Now, he's still not satisfied with uh, Bhikkhu. And this is quite interesting what he's asking now. What is the reason, Venerable Sir? What is the condition for describing the form ag- aggregate? The feeling aggregate, the perception, the mental formations aggregate. What is the reason, what is the condition for describing the consciousness aggregate? So he's asking, what, why, what causes there for describing them in that way that you are describing them? The four great primary elements are the reason, Bhikkhu. The four great primary elements are the condition for describing all form aggregates. So what he's saying is all materiality consists of the four primary elements, four great primary elements. So whatever there is in the form. So this is the reason, this is the condition for describing all forms as an aggregate, an aggregate of belonging together. And then contact is the reason, contact is the condition for describing feeling aggregate. Contact is the reason, contact is condition for describing perception aggregate. Contact is the reason, contact is the condition for describing mental formations aggregate. So we have three of the aggregates, aggregates with which we are settled. The feeling, the perception, and the uh, mental formations, which are all dependent on contact. Now, feeling depends on the contact of the sense consciousness. Perception depends on the contact with feeling. And mental formation depends on the contact with perception and feeling, both of them. So we have a dependent origination in a very small way. This is typical of the Buddha's teaching analytical, breaking ourselves down into our past so that we get rid of this idea that we are me, a one whole mass. Okay, and now, name and form is the reason, name and form is the condition for describing the consciousness aggregate. Now, name and form is a wrong translation I'm afraid it's translating the words Nama Rupa which mean mind and body because name and form doesn't mean a thing here now Nama Rupa can be translated as name and form it means that and the word name in English gives us a totally wrong description because name is Ayakima is a name no? it doesn't have anything to do with what this is really all about the word Nama is a another word for the word mind and it is the word which means namer with an r at the end and not name the mind is the namer it names our stuff for us when we hear something we say aha a cockatoo it's the namer of everything so the the word here name and form is obviously a mistranslation. Well, it's not a mistranslation. You can't say it's wrong. It just doesn't fit in the sentence. It's a mind and body. Hmm? 
so mind and body is the reason is the condition for describing the consciousness aggregate now these are the sense consciousnesses and the sense consciousnesses are of course dependent upon the body that has the sense doors and the mind which takes part in that is the one that gives us the understanding although we could could have um, broken it up into the other three using mind and uh, mind and body for it now again the bhikkhu says but but venerable sir how does there come to be the embodiment view now the embodiment view is the view that we are an identity we are embodying the aggregates particularly the mind aggregates investing them with a person we're investing them with this person so I'll have to get a different sutta because it's not printed here one of these days we're going to get a new printout on this I'm sure with everything nicely printed how does there come to be the embodiment view that's the question huh? yes. here friend the untaught ordinary man who has no regard for noble ones is unconversant with Dhamma and undisciplined in it who has no regard for Arahants and is unconversant with their Dhamma and undisciplined in it sees body as self or self as possessed of body or body in self or self in body he sees feeling as self or self as possessed of feeling feeling in self or self in feeling same for perception same for mental formation same for sense consciousness he sees consciousness as self or self as possessed of consciousness we are possessed of that aren't we or consciousness in self or self in consciousness that is how there comes to be the embodiment view in other words we are sticking a self into all that and if we are sticking a self into that we are investing that with our personality So now he's asking the next question what venerable sir is the gratification what is the danger what is the escape in the case of form feeling perception and mental formation what is the gratification danger escape in the case of consciousness he wants to know with why the Buddha is so determined to show that there's no self in those aggregates why is there such a danger in that how can one escape in the from them and why do they gratify us why do we make them a self the bodily pleasure and mental joy bhikkhu that arise and depends on form this is a gratification in the case of form but form is impermanent painful and subject to change body we should say and subject to change this is the danger in the case of the body the removal of desire and lust the abandonment of desire and lust for body this is the escape in the case of the body well this is very clear and quite um, 
the thing that is really holding everyone back from becoming enlightened because we want to treat this body in the best possible way that we can and sometimes of course we treat it wrongly and we think that we might be um, in a more on, a, on an ascetic line we think that we're doing something very good for a, a sort of a, a renunciation type thing but in reality what we're doing is we're treating this body because it is me so the gratification of the body is bodily pleasure and the joy which arises from that but when we realize that the body is actually impermanent and painful and subject to change then we realize that there's danger in having a body and when we get rid of our desire and lust which is connected with body then we get rid of then we are the we have escaped from the body so the desire and lust which we can recognize in ourselves is something that we need to become aware of because otherwise we think oh well I haven't got that it's very easy to think that that one hasn't got it so one needs to really become extremely attentive to one's thoughts and actions during the day how much of it is concerned with the body how much of it do we actually um, do in order to make the body more pleasant the body feelings sensations how much is, is concerned with desire for having a little more comfort having it better how much of it is concerned with disliking any discomfort how much is concerned with body altogether and as we remember the impermanence of the body do we just have that as an intellectual exercise are we actually aware of the fact that this body in itself does not have any real value we can continue the practice in any other realm without a body much easier one should think one sits in meditation without any knee pains I should think so what is there to be so concerned about this body one needs to recognize the fact that we consider the body very important and when we consider the body as wanting to get rid of it that's only the other side of the same coin the same applies to everything else the same applies to feelings perceptions, mental formations and sense consciousness and the word that the Buddha uses is that the pleasure and joy arise in dependence on we're depending on bodily pleasures or feeling pleasures or sense consciousness pleasures seeing and so forth so we are dependent upon something which is totally impermanent doesn't have any intrinsic value will certainly change and it also has danger in it 
because in the long, long run all of that, whatever it may be does become painful because it changes its status so there's a very important aspect of this is to realize the dependence that's the first thing the dependence we have the second thing is that it's impermanent and becomes painful and that if we let go of desire all dukkha goes this bhikkhu still isn't satisfied but venerable sir he asks he starts every question with but which is a very good indication that he's got skeptical doubt All, everybody who has skeptical doubt starts with but but it's a good thing because it's uh, at least he gives a long explanation but venerable sir how does a man know how does he see that there come to be in him no underlying tendencies to conceive this body with its consciousness and all external signs in terms of eye and mind so he wants to know how is it how does one know that one has given up the idea of eye and mind because one can give it up intellectually and haven't made the slightest impression on it so it's a very valid question how does one really know any kind of form whatever whether past, future, present in oneself or external gross or subtle inferior or superior inferior is already abandoned superior is a superior goal what we're talking about body, oh yeah. far or near he sees all of it with right understanding as it is thus this is not mine, this is not I, this is not myself the same for feeling, perception, formation and consciousness it is when a man knows thus because sees thus that there comes to be in him no underlying tendencies to conceive this body with its consciousness and all external signs in terms of I and mine so again the words are if a man, if a man knows and sees so first we know and then we see within and that seeing within is the inner vision which means that one has actually had the experience of it the inner vision which we experience and we know and then we know and then in a certain bhikkhu's mind this thought arose so it seems body is not self, feeling is not self, perception is not self, mental formations are not self, consciousness is not self, then what self will the karmas done by the not self affect? Now that's a very familiar question. It hasn't been put exactly in that way, but it's just exactly the thing that people ask. Namely, well, if there's nobody here, what am I trying so hard to meditate? And uh, if I'm not existing, I mean, who's having loving kindness? and uh, you know that type of thing and why should I meditate if I don't even exist and uh, why should I even be kind to people if, I'm, if there's nobody there in fact I've heard a weird one once what was that um, well if there's nobody there one could go out and kill everybody <laughs> there's nobody there anyway so this is exactly the same question huh? it's exactly the same thing in their mind in his mind 
if there's no if there's everything is not self then what self will the karmas done by the not self affect right so who is going to get enlightened if the not self is meditating huh? okay so the blessed one knew in his mind the thought in that bhikkhu's mind and he addressed the bhikkhu's thus it is possible because that some misguided man unknowing and ignorant with his mind dominated by craving might fancy that he could outstrip the master's teaching thus so it seems and then he repeats this question form is not self then what self will the karma done by the not self effect so he says that this kind of question shows that one wants to be cleverer than the teacher now because you have been trained by, the, by me independent conditionality in various instances because how do you conceive this is body permanent or impermanent impermanent venerable sir but is what is impermanent painful or pleasant painful venerable sir but is what is impermanent painful and subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine this is I this is myself no venerable sir and how do you conceive it of feeling perception formation and consciousness there are the other all five huh? are they permanent or impermanent painful or pleasant how can anything that's impermanent painful and subject to change be considered to be mine I or myself so they all say no to all this of course you know the interesting thing is that he doesn't answer that question about how can the, the self with the karma done by the not self be affected the Buddha had four ways of answering questions one was by a counter question this is what he's doing here he's doing a counter question one is by yes or no if that was possible and uh, useful another way was by um, giving a long explanation in detail and the fourth way was not saying anything now the fourth way he used when the question was so off that it wasn't worthwhile putting his attention on it particularly if the questioner was trying to get one better on him which is exactly what is being done here this particular bhikkhu obviously as I said before is, is a skeptical doubter he's kept saying but all the time but it's typical of skeptical doubt then he comes up with this you know sort of humding off a thing well if I, there's nobody there I mean who's going to get the karma and the Buddha doesn't want to be bothered so he keeps on teaching what he actually started out with the same thing so they all say no this cannot be me that cannot be I eh? those five things therefore be good any kind of form whatever and then he says there's a past far and near in fact all body should be seen as it is with right understanding thus this is not mine this is not I this is not myself and the same for the other four aggregates when he sees thus the well-taught noble disciple becomes dispassionate towards form feeling perception formations and consciousness well, i think this is the most crucial of the uh, teaching in this particular sutta to become dispassionate 
dispassionate means equanimity even-mindedness how can anyone hurt one with something they say or do if there's nobody sitting inside to be hurt or if there's nobody sitting inside to have desire or lust it's not possible so if one has really seen that there is nobody there that this is not me nor is it mine nor is it myself that the body and the mind are not possessed of something or somebody that they just are as they are then it's very easy to be dispassionate because there's a certain perspective that one can become an observer of this body and mind the mental formation is an observing one one doesn't have to be involved in it this passion is the same as complete equanimity and equanimity has to be based on insight if it's not based on insight it can be suppression which it often is it can be indifference which is without loving kindness and compassion suppression of course is um, useless because it doesn't resolve anything it can be just a forceful trying to keep one's cool which is quite possible to do not so difficult but none of it has any real result in wisdom this whole pathway leads to wisdom wisdom insight the path through the jhanas is the path to wisdom insight so what the Buddha is teaching is that one first knows this by inference if something is so changeable can it be pleasant? no, it's got to be painful because it's constantly changing how can it remain its, uh, retain its pleasant aspect if it's unpleasant and always changing how can it be me? where's the me to be found within all this now we can look at it like this and it's probably quite easy to see that since we have been born we've had untold it's impossible to give a number of mental formations of mind moments we can't count them we also have had untold number of feelings perceptions untold number of sense contacts there's no way we can even give a number when we say millions, billions it's all guesswork we say billions of them we have also had a totally different body from the time we were born until now in fact it's unrecognizable there could be a slight resemblance to the baby in the features but it's highly unlikely if one didn't have it in one's own photo album one would never recognize the photo that this is supposed to be me only reason we know it is because some either mother or father told us look what you looked like when you were three days old that's no resemblance whatsoever so we've had an actual fact billions of bodies already 
because that also keeps changing. But we can only recognize possibly dozens of them or maybe a few, maybe a hundred of them. We can see the difference depending on how old we are. We certainly can't recognize ourselves. In fact, it's an old parlor game to show somebody um, a photo from one's school days and say, find me. Not easy. Sometimes one can see a bit of a resemblance. So the body is unrecognizable, but by the same token, our thoughts are totally unrecognizable. We haven't got a clue what we were thinking ten years ago, five years ago, ten days ago, ten minutes ago. We have no idea what we were feeling. So within all this multitude of feelings and perceptions and sense contacts and bodies, where is this me? Well, one of the places it really hides in is memory. Now, memory is part of perception because we can possibly remember some day that we were at school when we were 10 years old we now have an idea that that must be me so it's me now also within that memory we have also closed down on impermanence because there is a certain continuity continuity overshadows impermanence Change overshadows dukkha. What we try to do when we have a bit much, or even when we don't have that much dukkha, we try to change. Change the position, change the book that we're reading, change something. Go from one's room to the garden, think about something one could do in the future because the present isn't very good change something change overshadows dukkha the escape route it's a dead end straight there's no escape possible but we always try again and again it doesn't really matter to try if we know that what we're doing if we know that we're just momentarily trying to cop out. But if we think that that's what life is all about, trying to make it better, then we haven't seen any reality. And the third one, non-self, is overshadowed by solidity. Just touch this body and however solid it feels. Look at the last thought, the one that's right now. Isn't it solid? The feeling is solid. Solidity overshadows all of the, uh, the, the, three, the three characteristics. Solidity goes over the non-self, which are all of our characteristics non-self. And change just uh, clouds over dukkha and continuity clouds over impermanence.
and that's why one could say with some sort of um, um, justification that me is really embedded in memory now if we were to cut out memory for a moment and just look at ourselves now and this is what mindfulness is all about not concerned with memory at all it's concerned with the actual happening now so the actual happening now is this we can feel the touch sensation on the uh, buttocks on the legs because there we are touch sensation we may be able to feel the breath if we just give it a thought a moment we may be able to feel the heartbeat we may be aware of a thought and we may be aware of a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral physical sensation or even an emotion we're certainly aware of hearing seeing and already I said touching okay where's a me in that if we didn't have a memory there's a body touching there's an eye seeing there's an ear hearing there's a mind responding where's a me well just as this speaker says you know how can the self be affected by the karma that the not self made the answer usually is well if it isn't me who is it or it isn't me alright but then it isn't you either so what where do we go from here well who is it it's a very interesting inquiry and this is what the Buddha is after the inquiry is has to be co-joined with absolute and utter mindfulness being completely in this moment where we can actually notice the change of the thought we can change the notice we can notice the change sorry of the sensation of the body because now it may be more unpleasant or more neutral as it was before so we have different feelings, we have different thoughts we may not be aware of the change in the body except possibly for the breath going in and out which is also a change within this change which is happening right now where is this person called me? and this is what the Buddha is saying here in essence that if we know that this is so if we see it with right understanding seeing with right understanding is the inner connection the inner vision with the understanding of what we have seen if we don't understand what we have seen it's totally useless to us we'll have to see it again until one day we do understand it if we have seen it with understanding obviously this passion will arise the dispassion towards this body it's alive as long as it's alive it dies when it dies and the dispassion towards all the other formations which arise now what does that do? it has a very interesting effect on one when this dispassion has arisen the, very, the most interesting effect is the fact that thinking is no longer considered to be a necessity it is sometimes 
impossible to be without it when there are outer demands being made. I mean, somebody rings up on the phone, you've got to think what to say. I mean, there's no, no way you can't do that. Or you just have to say, look, I'm, you know, out of it. <laughs> but if you want to be, you know, sort of behave normally and naturally, you've got to think. But there are many, many occasions during the day when it's not necessary to think. And when one has become dispassionate towards this whole um, conglomeration, because that's what aggregates are, conglomeration, then thinking is no longer, um, not only not necessary, it's no longer considered to be a um, worthwhile effort. which are sensations and emotions and if there's this fashion towards them pain is also to a certain extent not a great um, burden and the uh, pleasant sensations are no longer considered with elation and the emotions of course have been purified by that time to become the four Brahma Viharas. The whole aspect of this passion takes its cue from the sense contacts. One doesn't run around trying to get the sense contacts which one finds more desirable than others. When they happen, they happen, and when they don't happen, they don't happen. The whole thing has quietened down, cooled off, seen to be for what it is, just phenomena arising and ceasing. Without that personal identification, without that personal interjection, which produces every kind of problem that we could possibly think of. There isn't a single problem that has ever existed or exists now which is not concerned with that personal identification. This is a discussion the Buddha is talking about here. It's the end of this. Yes. I was just wondering about memory, um, because you know, in my own practice, I find that really does um, bring up a sense of self, especially if it's a painful memory, because the mind goes back to the feeling aspect in it. And um, so I was wondering whether one could see. Um, that when memories come into the mind to see them as an indulgence and totally unnecessary and just to cut them that would be the way to do it and to only use memory and like you were saying to only use thinking when you, when you need it yes mm. you only use memory when you want to remember the Buddha's teaching mm. and I don't, I don't mean this facetiously I mean that truly it's the only thing worthwhile remembering. Everything else, if it's got to be remembered, you can put on a piece of paper and stick it in your desk. 
but this one's got to have in one's in one's mind so that one can call on it when need be because you can't run to your desk and say now wait a minute you've been not nasty to me I'll just look it up and see what I should be doing you know I mean it'd be quite nice if you could but it doesn't work that way you've got to have it right in there so this is the only thing worthwhile remembering and you know remembering what we do we remember ourselves and as you say you know some quite often the unfortunate things that have happened in the life one remembers oneself but what one remember the one who is remembering and the the one who is being remembered are not the same people they're two entirely different people and the identification process as you quite rightly see is getting another support system by making those two the same look I've been around all this time and all these things have happened to me one problem after another it's very common in Sri Lanka by the way when somebody greets you ask them how they are you know and they say uh, well my problem is and then you get a long story of what their problem is um, because people don't have this kind of privacy idea in Sri Lanka it's that uh, you know problems are common property you know so they tell you all about it and <laughs> which I think is quite nice you know they're not that heavy then but the memory aspect does support that ego um, identification strongly and if you can think for a moment when something like that comes up or even now if you think for a moment that now you're remembering but you're not the same person that you are rem- that is being remembered that's somebody entirely different totally different had a different thoughts at the time different reactions different feelings I'm sure a different body because our body constantly changes you know and uh, was it in a totally different situation so if we look at this person back there with more dispassion we can learn to look at this one right now with more dispassion because it's all the same dispassion so the one thing to do is to cut it to cut the memory and the other one is to recognize that this is just a mind game that we play it has no basis in reality and yet everybody believes it it's strange isn't it mm, because it's a way of torturing ourselves well in my case it is yes. because um, what, what I also do is, is I go back to living the feeling in that memory you're not the only one I can assure you no. <laughs> <laughs> you're in good company <laughs> but I'm sure that we can see all of us right now quite clearly it's totally useless mm. totally useless and it's a, it's a self-inflicted pain which one could actually describe as masochism mm. but we don't see it that way I mean, we never see it that way. In fact, we've got psychotherapists that should try at $150 an hour to try to work it all out for us, you know, or at least help us work it out. But it's totally useless. It might be helpful, I find, in that situation to bring those things to mind, and that is, I'm not these thoughts, feelings, or emotions. Because that's what's said in that sutra, isn't it? Yes. I'm not this body. I'm not just this thought or these thoughts 
at the time at the time when the unpleasant memory yeah well uh, it might be that at the time when already the pain has arisen it's a bit late it's quite possible it might be a bit late then it might be much more useful to think those thoughts I am not that's not me now and everything's fine and to constantly remember that memory first of all it's faulty and it has nothing to do with what actually is it's only a mind projection and then when it does come up first you might have to cut it and later you can just look at it and say another movie <laughs> so it does look like a movie it's a real, real movie going on it's very interesting I mean it might be alright to watch the movie but uh, that's another distraction isn't it to watch yeah, a movie it's not in my case anyway um, it's not very interesting because there is this painful thing yeah. it, is, it is masochistic I mean it's hurting myself yeah. but it's only painful because of the identification system it couldn't possibly be painful otherwise yeah. so if you could first of all say now that was that's not me now that's another one and then maybe as Stephen is suggesting use that 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 wasn't me I don't know if that would work I think what works is this is me now that's what I was saying I am not this yeah now now yes so that that it's uh, and then the uh, memory will not hurt well it, it takes attention off of that because it's ah it takes attention off yes the falseness of saying it's just I found it easier to drop sometimes through seeing bringing that to mind it's yes exactly what's in that what is what is the helpful aspect of that is because if you think this is not me this is not mine you can't think of that other stuff you see you're, you're changing mm. you're, you're changing your yeah, your you're, you're changing your, your focus but the main I think the main aspect would be to do this as much of the time as possible but it's not a parrot like repetition and that doesn't work either because we've got a chant like that and we can chant that you know um, and it doesn't work either um, when one has actually the the time and the uh, peace and quiet to do this sort of thing to investigate why am I calling this me what is it in there that is called I'm calling me and why is it isn't it foolish because it's only causing me more trouble when I call it me so can I get out of it not just to say well this isn't me it's not it's not it doesn't have enough impact on it may if you keep on repeating it you might believe it one day I don't know but I haven't found that to have enough impact it's got to be really understood that that isn't me that there isn't such a thing as me it's a um, worldwide um, it's a worldwide illusion which has been so much fostered and underwritten 
that nobody except the few people who are trying to practice the Buddha's teaching have ever become aware of it and a few others who have a natural inclination towards truth. But it's a worldwide um, fiction that we're living in. We're living in an absolute fiction. And once we've seen it, there's nothing else to do except to laugh. The jokes are not. And if one has, and usually people who are very young don't see that, but some of them do, of course, when one has been, you know, living a while, and then all of a sudden you see that fiction, you do think that, well, one usually thinks that one has been pretty dense. Because once one sees it, it's so obvious. And one has been running around in circles, trying to make something of this me, you know, make it healthy, make it wealthy, make it wise, you know, whatever. You know, make it good, make it pleasant, make it virtuous, make it this, make it that. You know, help the world, help the world. And in reality, there's nobody there. It's a body and a mind. Being nobody going nowhere. I mean, the book doesn't exactly say all that, but the title is perfect. <laughs> I was lucky one time. The edit, the the publisher did not want to change the title. Mm-hmm. Usually, I'm not that lucky. So the uh, the uh, the actual work um, can be an, an contemplative inquiry, which is very helpful. It can be a meditation. It's an insight meditation. Probably the most um, um, purposeful one to get at the ground of being an inside meditation actually getting in there and watching the mind watching the feeling and saying who's doing this where's it coming from and then uh, a contemplation and meditation and then again also realizing that we're only hurting ourselves with it see it is I've always compared this, and I think I'll compare it like that again. I compare it to carrying about a hundred-pound backpack on your shoulders. And if you've been running around with that for a while, you think, oh, well, yes, it's a bit heavy, but never mind, you know. But you take it off, and you feel so relieved. You never want to put it on again. You want to send it off by train or sell the whole thing or throw it away or whatever. Because it's so heavy. Once you take it off, you realize how heavy it's been. And that's this ego illusion that we're carrying around. It's so heavy. It puts everything into the context of what's happening to this person. I mean, that's absurd in itself, isn't it? We've got a universe out there. So how can there be a context of what's happening to one aspect of it which doesn't even have the size of a grain of sand? I mean, comparative to the universe. I mean, a grain of sand is not even even um, uh, the right size if we compare ourselves to the universe. So how can this context be anything? It's an absurd uh, observation that we make there. It's a fiction which has been so well propounded that everybody believes it. 
Do you know the story by Oscar Wilde, The Emperor's Clothes? Well, that's it. The fiction which has been propounded. Anybody not know the story? You don't know it? Um, there was an emperor who was very vain and he wanted to have particularly nice um, suit made, new suit for his uh, uh, birthday, um, beautiful. So he went to all the tailors and uh, he said that if they didn't please them, he'd, knock the, uh, he'd cut their heads off. So <laughs> he went to one tailor to, to the next and none of them pleased him. So finally he came to the last one and he didn't want to have be, you know, have his head uh, cut off. So, and nothing was left. All the material had been tried. All the pattern had been tried. There was nothing new that he could try. So he decided that all he could do was propound a fiction. So he uh, took the emperor into his uh, dressing room and said and showed him this beautiful garment like this out of nothing. And uh, the emperor said, I can't see it. And the tailor said, oh, but your majesty, it's so gossamer thread, it's hard to recognize. Can't you see how beautiful it is? And he put it around him like this and draped it over him and this way and that way. And the emperor believed him. And so when his birthday came, then he went to this tailor and said, now you have to give me this new suit. And the tailor said, yes, certainly. And asked him to take his old suit off and take everything off and he put his new suit on him and then he went out and uh, greeted the populace and everybody and was everybody had been told that he was wearing a new suit so everybody went ah how beautiful until one little boy said but the emperor is naked (laughs) (laughs) yes a child's un prejudiced mind to see things as they really are. This is the Buddhist teaching. Unprejudiced to see things as they are. I haven't read this story in in, in 25 years, but every time I talk about this once in two, three years, it comes to mind. It's a perfect story. Well, Oscar Wilde was a wonderful storyteller. Seeing things as they really are. And then daring to say it. Don't think the Buddha didn't have enemies. People didn't like this. They wanted to know that these gods are going to uh, save them from their sorrows and from their defilements if they brought enough ghee, if they brought enough uh, flowers, if they brought enough incense and paid the, the Brahmin priest enough. Everything would be fine. Everything would be all right. They didn't like this at all. Buddha said, nothing's going to be all right. You've got to do it yourself. (laughs) All right. Now, just the end of this, okay? Now, when he sees thus, seeing, inner seeing, always the inner seeing, you don't see anything with your eyes. You don't see with your eyes that this is not self. I mean, you look exactly the same after as you did before. So it's got to be the inner seeing. When he sees thus, the well-taught, noble disciple becomes dispassionate towards form, feeling, perception, mental formations and consciousness. Being dispassionate, his greed fades. With the fading of greed, he's liberated. 
when he is liberated there comes the knowledge it is liber- it is liberated it is mind and body it he understands birth is exhausted the holy life has been lived what was to be done is done there is no more of this to come this is what the blessed one said and the bhikkhus were satisfied and they delighted in the blessed one's words but while this discourse was being spoken the minds of as many as 60 bhikkhus were liberated from taints by not clinging nice if you can get it huh? 60 bhikkhus were became arahant when listening to this discourse totally enlightened the Buddha's impact was such that this happened several times this I believe not 100% sure but I believe that this is the greatest number having become enlightened at one single time there are many um, stories of one or two people but 60 I think this is the greatest number at one time now one must remember that they were bhikkhus they were monks and that they were practicing one should imagine they must have been practicing well um, they weren't just um, ordinary listeners that had just come in for the evening so they were actually practitioners but having heard that the greed the clinging to this me idea just faded away faded away the uh, whole taints of being the three taints of being one is the craving to be sometimes called the taint of being but that gives a wrong impression because that imp- gives the impression that this is a taint to be here it's a craving to be here which is the taint and the taint of sensual desire and the taint of ignorance which is ignoring that we are not so these are the three taints they have they were um, they faded away they completely disappeared for them because they could see within themselves the mistake they'd been made now it would stand to reason that all those bhikkhus had been adept at doing the meditation that their minds were very concentrated when listening to the Buddha because one's mind does become concentrated if one listens to a um, revered teacher that their minds were very purified because of having done the meditation for quite some time doesn't say exactly when this was spoken so they had purified minds they had concentrated minds and they, are, they had been able to um, have different states of consciousness in the jhanas so when they heard this and probably not for the first time all of a sudden it clicked and they were able to do it it's that click not just understanding it's a click of being able to do it but that doesn't have it doesn't go together with understanding it has to have as its support system the purified concentrated mind just understanding isn't good enough and very often also the, the unpurified unconcentrated mind doesn't even understand it but that's already um, 
then of course one is even further away from it. But in, even understanding is not enough in order to become enlightened. It's got to be, have that support system. I mean that, it is like a, one could say, you know, it clicks. And then it says, and it can let go. It can be a meditative experience. This undoubtedly would have been a meditative experience for them, being concentrated onto the words. But in our own experience, the meditative experience would be while we're meditating and while we're directing our mind towards the unconditioned, wanting to let go, wanting to let go of the me illusion actually wanting to let go of it and being able to have that moment of clarity and leaving it behind. It is a feeling of leaving it behind. One could say like that. It's not easy to say these things in words. As you can see over and over again, the Buddha does describe what needs to be known, but the actual experience is also only described very briefly because it is difficult to find the proper words. So, that is the end of this whole discourse. Any questions? Why wasn't meditation part of the Eightfold Path? Sorry, why wasn't it? Why it, wasn't meditation? It is. Well, the uh, it's one sama samadhi. The uh, it's one is sama samadhi. Is it, it's a jhana, right concentration. concentration. Yeah. The last step, right concentration, is is the uh, is the jhana. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's also it's also you can see the 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 uh, threefold division of the teaching is sila samadhi and panya. And samadhi is a, is a concentration, but the concentra- meditative concentration, samadhi. And in the Noble Eightfold Path, it uh, comes at the very end. But that doesn't mean that it has to be done at least. It has to be been misunderstood like that. But in, yes, you could see in the other discourses which we have read already, um, the Buddha constantly says, bhikkhus, what a master has done for his disciples, I have done for you. There are empty huts and the root of trees. Go and meditate. <laughs> I mean, there's hardly any discourse that he doesn't say that. Yeah, to his pickles. Yes. I mean, did he say that to the population? Or? Not so much to the lay people. Not so much. The, uh, to the lay people, he very often just talked about virtuous living and... Um, um, the uh, Brahma Viharas, the, uh, the the supreme emotions, and um, not so much until unless there was a certain lay person that he needed to instruct, as a in a like in a public talk. Mm-hmm. No, he wouldn't wouldn't so much go into meditation. Mm-hmm. Be more on a on a little uh, more level of uh, right behavior and that daily living. There are not that many 
discourses to lay people. Not as many as to bhikkhus. There are, but not as many. Most of the time he was talking to bhikkhus. There are some, there are some very, very famous ones. But for our intents and purposes, the ones to the bhikkhus are more um, to the point because they are about the meditation and also about the insight. Anything else? Yes. Well, I have a question that's pretty, pretty vague. It's about memory. And I, I too have been watching memory today, specifically. And it wasn't very pleasant, apparently. No, it's, it's a lot of insight. Really? About um, previous memories and why, how they sort of fit together to form a person, an yeah. apparent person. Personalities I became very aware was just memory. And I naturally wanted to inquire a bit more about what this stuff memory really is. And that's, that's the real nature of the question to understand or to have some insight into actually what memory is. It's such an intangible, subtle um, stuff. Perception, mm-hmm. I don't know what word to put to it. Well, we do um, learn from the Buddha that that perception has to have memory in it. But we we can also say that memory is a mental formation. And that puts it in context with what we're doing. It's a mental formation. It's a thought system. Perception has to have memory in it because if we weren't told that that tree is called a tree, we wouldn't know that to call it a tree. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you speak a different language, you would be told something else, and you'd call it something different. So it has to have memory in it. But memory as such is a mental formation. And as we know, we don't have to have those mental formations. And there are a support system for the me, as you apparently have found out yourself. Yeah, what I realized was that most of personality, going, you know, just from my own observation of myself, is, is built on words. The whole thing is just, just words. There's no... I wouldn't um, say that. Well, it's saying, what I'm trying to get at is the difference between... We talked about heart and mind the other day. Yeah. And I was realising the difference between an action done from the heart which is complete and leaves hardly any memory at all, or any damaging memory, any memory that interferes with future events. And an action that's initiated by the mind through almost through a verbal system, I mean, I don't combat this very well, but from a mind that is detached from its, um, from, from the feeling aspect, it seemed that the, the feeling had to be, or needed to be the initiating reason for an action. Well, I wouldn't in the first place, I wouldn't say um, that an action initiated through the heart would not leave a damaging memory behind because you can have plenty of anger in the heart and have a very damaging action uh, resulting from that. That's the first thing. And um, what was the other thing you said that I said I wouldn't say that? 
Well, words. words. No, I wouldn't say that either because when you get up in the morning and if you are in a normal frame of mind, do you know who's getting up? Other than what I would call a verbal structure, no. No. Do you have to tell yourself that this is Stephen uh, getting up, or do you feel it? You feel it. Ah. You don't have to tell yourself. Mm. The whole thing hinges. Ah, well, that's unfortunate. (laughs) 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 But that doesn't mean that that's your support system for me. Well, I think you are, and I can tell you that um, the uh, simplicity of one's approach guarantees success and not the convolution of the approach. So, on the again, on that aspect, the simpler you can see it the easier it becomes. And the more one is in touch with feelings, the easier it becomes. The thought process is under all circumstances, whether it's memory or whether it's uh, uh, mindfulness, it doesn't matter. These are all thought processes. The thought process has to be the explainer, has to be the knower, that the feeling is the seer. That two have to work together. So any kind of me is a feeling. And because it becomes, we're so habituated to it, we don't even know it. I mean, unless we were talking about this. Well, who's going to worry about who's sitting here? Obviously, it's me sitting here, so what? Until, of course, the past moment. And then there's a bit of a shake-up. So, because there is the feeling has been so habitual, there's no knower behind it. But if a new feeling arises, and we don't have the knower, we still haven't got any result. So, first is feeling which is seen, and then is the mind which says, aha, that's what you've seen. So the mind may say, in this case, ah, you are actually feeling the me. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. Yes, the mind explains. From a baby, what, what had happened part of the insight meditation, I'd realized that everything that I know is only what I've been told mm. by other people who thought they knew too. That's right. Like they told me there was a universe out there and there was a the sun up there and a man here and the earth is here and it's all been like this and all the rest of it but really I don't know any of that it's just a verbal thing and that's what I've realised mm. and, and the whole then I realised my whole consciousness was, was verbal and that's what I was yes but if you then become the kid in the story of the emperor's clothes you can then you can say hey wait a minute that universe that's me <laughs> or he's naked <laughs> because then you're really in it and then it becomes simple and you let go of the conditioning and this is of course 
the more conditioning one has had, the diff- more difficult it is. Some of us might have been luckier. I have myself been extremely fortunate. My parents paid very little attention to me. So I had very little conditioning. And uh, I never knew it until much later in life that this was a very lucky thing. Not that they were indifferent to me, they just didn't have the time. And so I wasn't as strongly conditioned. I mean, bad enough, but not as strongly as in some cases. So the more conditioning we have, the more difficult it is to get out of it. But in no case is it impossible. Anybody can get out of this conditioning. Because again, as I've said before, I'll say it again, there is only one mind. So if one can do it, everybody can do it. Unfortunately, very few people try. Far more people try to get this person they think is me to have it, you know, successful in whatever they think is successful. So the greatest success that one can possibly have in this life is to lose the me. To lose it utterly and completely and never to find it again. That's the greatest success we can have. And we're on the best wicket for that. Anything else? The thoughts in the thing that explain the feeling of me. Is that the question? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought you were going to... It's going to come more. Yes. The, the thoughts explain the feeling. But, there's a but about that. Because we're so used to those feelings. We don't go about explaining it anymore. It's only now that we have been told through the Buddha's words, now come on, have a look, that we can actually find that explanation. For instance, in memory, that's a great supporter of me. So the, the feeling of me gets the explanation in the thought if one takes the trouble to do that. But if one doesn't take the trouble to do that, well, one just keeps on going the way one was. No. He's not going to be enlightened, no. No, on the contrary going to have a rough time. Well, you don't need any memory for me when you get up in the morning to know that Steve's getting up. And you don't even have to explain to yourself, this is Steve getting up. You don't have to do that. You just know you're getting up, right? Because you can feel it. This is where the whole thing hinges upon. Whether one feels a me in there or when one doesn't. And not to feel it in there, one needs all these um, assistances to remind oneself and then eventually to be able to let go of that. You know. So these 60 bhikkhus all became enlightened when listening to this discourse. Maybe what's wrong with us is that we're not bhikkhus, that's why, huh? Yeah, 
Can you say that again? I didn't catch that. Well, the, you said before that we're all, everyone here is under this illusion. Yes, uh, except a few people who you know, have come out of it, yes. Could you say that that's why everyone's on the earth? Well, that's why we're all humans, because we're under that illusion. Sure, of course. So the same thing, I think. Okay. Well, if we didn't have that illusion... We, we wouldn't be here. That's right. If we didn't have that illusion, we wouldn't be here. We'd, uh, we'd either, um, well, if we were lucky, we'd be in the unborn emptiness, and we wouldn't have to worry about all this stuff that goes on here. Um, or if we're not that lucky, we might be in a, in a higher realm, where we're still a thought of me, but it isn't quite as close as here. But uh, for the consolation, the Buddha said this is the best realm for becoming enlightened. So we should do it right here and in this realm as human beings. But we've got so much dukkha that we really one day are going to wake up to it and, uh, you know, do something about it. And not try to alleviate the dukkha but accept it and say, aha, it's my best teacher. This is a very important aspect of dukkha. One should be so grateful to it. One should be on one's knees to it. Say, it's so nice of you to come around again. Now, I really am going to see it this time. But most people don't look at it that way. I mean, we don't, do we? We say, oh, go away, we don't want to be part of you. Mm-hmm. Do you say that about Dukkha um, because it's a, um, a wonderful vehicle for insight? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, because if we don't see that the whole universe is Dukkha, uh, all existence is Dukkha, we're never going to make tracks to get out of it. Mm. But if we, of course, and we, if we take the Dukkha that's happening to us, as a personal insult, which most people do, and totally unwarranted, and uh, probably the mistake of some um, outer happening which should have directed it somewhere else, um, then of course it's not going to bring any insight. Then we're going to try and rectify the mistake, you know, and convince the people who are producing the dukkha that they're totally wrong thinking, and uh, have it all wrong, and get it right until the next to go happen. Perhaps I have a funny question, but uh, this came up when I was doing five aggregates. Um, if, if the phenomenal world is completely a personal projection, or, you know, everybody's projection, what point do you think, I mean, why do you think that people all started having, having to agree about what they were perceiving? Like, this over here is a tree naming things. Mm. Do you think to keep from fighting? Or oh, they don't agree. This is the problem. Well, if I people were to agree, to things would be quite know. nice. I mean, they, they do agree that this is a house. No, well, that's I mean, not... They might not have the perspective. But that's not their mental formation. That's only the language. They happen to speak the same language. You know, if you were having a bunch of people right around you who all spoke different languages, nobody would be agreeing on anything. If you had a German here, it says, Baum. What do you mean, tree? It's a baum. 
Everybody knows it's Baum. How can you say it's a tree? What makes you think this is a tree? My mother told me it's a Baum. <laughs> no, that's language. That's speaking the same language. And English happens to be the widest spoken language in the world at this point in time. So uh, you find a lot of people agreeing with you that that's called tree. But that's strictly language. They still don't agree with you. One person might think it's a nice tree. One person might think it's an awful tree. One person might think it's a fire danger. Next one might think that it's a, a, a nuisance because that you could have grazing land there. Next one would think that eucalypts are a nuisance altogether because they, they go up in flames so easily. The next one would say eucalypts are wonderful because they, all Australia is uh, full of eucalypts and they are really a nice tree and they give a lot of shade and, and the kookaburra might think it's a dreadful tree, it doesn't have the leaves that it likes and uh, no, any variation at all. Any variation. And, and then some people mightn't even see it. They're concerned with whether you've got a decent driveway. They don't care whether you've got trees. That's a council, for instance. <laughs> so nobody agrees on anything nothing at all that's why we're talking about a relative reality and an absolute reality and on the level of absolute reality there can be no disagreement because there's nobody there to disagree and this is what the Buddha is trying to teach the absolute reality within which there is no division and no separation and no identity and then there can be no disagreement I mean two Arahants I couldn't imagine how they could disagree on anything I don't know I've never met two Arahants but I'm just saying that I can't imagine that they disagree on anything but we can disagree on anything in fact we learned in school debating and we were taught to debate both sides of the question <laughs> did you do that too? yeah sure anybody can do it you know and it didn't matter what you what you thought was right you just learned to debate both sides of the question you know so that's what we do usually you know most of the time we debate one side of the question only. not both It's a real, real um, punch and beauty show, the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that quite seriously. <laughs>